all of these practices, being fed, being nourished, being rested, being kept warm, being loved, increase a woman's oxytocin. So it's like all of these cultures knew on a deep and profound level the things that needed to be done for a new mother in order to keep her happy and rested, in order to keep her oxytocin levels high. And that just, just amazed me. Isn't it incredible? I'd like to acknowledge the traditional caretakers and inhabitants of this land across Australia. Also locally where I stand, the Beer Pie people, who continue their cultural practices, wisdom and law. Thanks for tuning in to the Pollination Mamas podcast where we have collaborative conversations cross-pollinating as we span our wings, connecting the threads of ancestral wisdom in a modern context so that we can live a nurtured life. I believe ancestral wisdom provides a roadmap to a regenerative culture, contributing to thriving communities, healing and health. Hi everyone, welcome to Pollination Mamas podcast. Super excited as always, I know I always say that because I always am. Um, excited in a different way today to have our guest Jojo Hogan here. Jojo Hogan, although we haven't met in person and in our little pre-chat we said this, we just feel like we know each other. We're both postpartum doulas, I feel like Jojo's a colleague. And um, while Jojo has lots of experience, I feel like we've got lots in similar in common as well. So Jojo Hogan is an international postpartum doula, mentor, educator, and the founder of Slow Postpartum, a worldwide movement that invites us to view the months following a birth as a time of profound and potent transformation for a new mother, a time when she deserves to be nurtured, supported, and celebrated. With qualifications and many years of experience in teaching and practicing yoga, massage, natural therapies, and specialised postpartum cooking. You're starting to get an idea of why I'm so excited to chat to Jojo. Jojo brings a unique mix of education, compassion, and life experience to every family she cares for. She takes a great joy and satisfaction in creating a slow postpartum sanctuary for new mothers and families so that they can find peace, joy, and confidence during this special and transformative time of their lives. Jojo lives and breathes a movement in which education and empowerment will lead to better care, understanding and care of new mothers, babies and families worldwide. Thank you so much for being here from the other side of the world. You are so welcome. It's so lovely to meet you in person finally. I know. And it's morning there. Good morning. <laughs> it's, yeah, the kids have just gone off to school and I'm snuggled up here. It's raining and grey outside as, as per usual in English autumns. Yeah. How lovely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Jojo, I would love for you to open up by sharing a little bit more about slow postpartum as a philosophy and the background inspiration for... Uh, why you moved into this area and what that means to have a slow postpartum. Sure, absolutely. So um, I've been working with pregnant mums and new mothers and families for about, it's been about 17 years now. Um, I first started as a yoga teacher, um, teaching prenatal yoga and postpartum yoga. 
And my yoga students also used to come to me for massage treatments because I'm also a massage therapist. So that kind of grew and blossomed into a beautiful, beautiful uh, pregnancy spa, which I opened about 15 years ago in Auckland, New Zealand, which is where I'm from. And so, I, you know, my life was surrounded with these beautiful pregnant women on this amazing journey of, of preparing to birth their babies. And, and it was wonderful and absolutely joyful. But, but I did notice that there was a, there was some kind of theme happening, which was that I would care for these women throughout these pregnancies. And they were often really um, motivated to do lots of self-care for themselves, you know, coming to yoga and having prenatal massage and doing everything right, you know. But quite often what would happen is that afterwards, I, well, I, I either wouldn't see them, you know, I'd see them for their last pregnancy massage and I'd say, goodbye, have a lovely baby and, you know, come back for a postnatal massage and maybe they would and maybe they wouldn't. But if I did catch up with them, if they came back to mum and baby yoga or if I bumped into them on the street or if maybe they came from, for a postnatal massage, something would happen, which is that I'd say, oh, you know, you've got this beautiful baby and they're 12 weeks old and how's everything been? And, and they would say, great. And then they'd burst into tears and they would cry, you know, through the whole appointment or they'd sit in the yoga class in tears and it, and it hadn't been great. It had been really, really hard for them. And, and my heart just went out to these, to these girls because I knew, I, I knew in my own experience, how hard it was. And I felt kind of like at a loss to, to know how to help, you know, because often they would come to me all the way to the end of pregnancy and they wouldn't be thinking about afterwards, about after the baby had come, you know. And this is when I started becoming more and more interested in the postpartum and thinking, how can I make a difference to these women in, in my world after their babies come? This is when I found about out about the work work of a postpartum doula and as soon as I came across this work and this understanding that a postpartum doula was there to hold the space and care deeply and nurture and nourish a mother after the birth of the baby then I really truly knew that was my that was my work you know that that was where I needed to be in that space because I could see women suffering and struggling and I could see the lack of support and the lack of care that was available to these mothers. And I knew my, in my own experience how difficult it was. I've got one son, he's 20 years old now, he's all grown up. But I struggled in those first few weeks and months postpartum and I felt lonely and isolated and I felt that I was the only one that was struggling with motherhood and, and, and finding it difficult. And of course, in hindsight, and has, now I understand that it's, this is not an unusual feeling. So I went on to train as a postpartum doula. Um, and during the time that I ran and owned and ran Balamama in Auckland, which was a wonderful time, but it was, it was full on, Shelley. It was frenetic. It was, you think that running a, a lovely relaxing spa would be lovely and relaxing, but, not really, because it's the same as running any other business. You end up, or put it this way, I ended up doing less massage and less yoga because I was doing more business. You know? And that wasn't my, where my heart was. So it wasn't making my heart happy. I wasn't managing a business that employed 10 people 
and not doing the things that I really truly love, which is working one-on-one with women, living a very fast, frenetic, busy, stressed out life was, was not fulfilling my soul. And so it was around about the same time that I discovered, I started to do a little bit of research and, you know, how can things be different? This is not a life I want to be living. And I discovered that other people feel the same. In fact, a lot of people feel the same in our modern day world. And there was a thing called the slow living movement. And this was an international movement that is spread out throughout the world. Started actually off with, um, in Italy, it started in Italy uh, with the slow food movement. You you must have heard of the slow food movement. I have, but I didn't know it originated in Italy. So that's interesting. yeah, it originated in Italy. It's quite a cool story, actually. It was a little town in Italy, and they uh, apparently they wanted to open a McDonald's there. And the whole town rebelled and said, no, we're not having a McDonald's in our town because we don't do fast food. We only do slow food. <laughs> I love that. I'm not surprised totally. it originated in a small Italian town at all. Totally, exactly. Yeah, you can imagine. So, but this is the this was the origination of the slow food movement. Which, and if those listeners who aren't aware of that, slow food is food that it's what it sounds like. It's, it's local. It's quite often organic. It's grown close by. It's cooked in a whole, you know, in a whole fashion. So it's whole food, and it takes time. It's the antithesis to slow food. And the slow food movement spread across the world, and, and in in partnership with it other slow movements begin to pop up and uh things like slow travel slow parenting slow uh, money slow business things like that where people were were pushing back against our busy frenetic uh culture that tells us that faster is better and that the person that gets to the finishing line first wins you know that philosophy it was the opposite to that and when I found out about the slow living movement mainly from actually listening to the wonderful Brooke McCallery um, her slow home podcast which I highly recommend for your listeners if they're interested slow your home Um, I heard her interview many people around the world that were interested in this and it just resonated with not only with me personally but also it, it made it made me realize that this was what I was teaching my clients as well. This is what I was asking of them. I was saying to them, really, um, really appreciate this time after the birth of your baby. Those first few weeks before the birth and the first few weeks after the birth, if we honor this and we see it as this time where we need to slow down and be more mindful and intentional and plan for, of course, then it becomes a much more positive time. Um, and I saw that in different people, the, the people that were, yeah, just, just more mindful and intentional about this, about the pre- preparation for the postpartum. It's so much more of a positive experience. And that's when I came up with the idea of a slow postpartum. I love it. I love that. Yeah, because I have heard of the slow food movement. Um, having a background in community gardening and that sort of area. And when I saw your business, Slow Post, I was like, oh, it's brilliant. It's beautiful. I love that. Um, it's and worth exploring. 
sorry, I was just saying it's we're worth exploring all the other slow movements around. There's so many, and since in fact some cities have kind of registered as being a slow city. The whole city wants to be seen as a, a place that is slower, you know? Yeah, it makes sense. It just feels like the medicine, like you said, in a world where we're really pushed to be busy and pack as much in as possible and our nervous systems are just on overdrive all the time and we really need to calm down and just to be able to digest our food better, to be able to digest our worlds better, to connect a bit more. So I really love that idea. I'll definitely put the link up of Slow Your Home podcast and have a look at it. And uh, I love when people get their inspiration from different areas and it reminds me of I've often thought about I don't know if you've heard of community supported agriculture where the community comes together so there might be a farmer or a few farmers and the community will pledge to give that farmer 30 or 60 dollars a week for a six-month period and the farmer will grow food for those people that line up Right. So they support that farmer to go, this is how many people you're going to be providing for and you've got that guaranteed income and those people get this beautiful fresh box of food, whether it's meat or vegetables or both and eggs. And I love that idea. I'm like, well, we need community-supported everything, community-supported postpartum is what oh we Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> what so, be amazing. Signing up to meal trains and cleaning rosters and all of the great stuff that we always talk about. That's right. And, the, you know, the, the funny thing that I always say is that when I had my baby boy 20 years ago, they say it takes a village to raise a child, don't they? We all, we've all heard that adage. But the, the thing was that I lived in a little village. I, I lived in a tiny village in the middle of the countryside in England, um, in Devon. And it was probably 10 houses. There's 10 houses in my village, I think. And I, so I had a village. And it was a lovely community village. People were really helpful and really um, friendly. And I'm sure that they offered, in fact, I know they did because people said to me, if you needed help with the baby, just let us know. But I didn't realize that I needed the help. And I didn't ask and I didn't reach out or accept those offers that were generously given because in our greater culture, we are told that it takes a mother to raise a baby and we expect that we should be able to do it ourselves because we look around, we see everybody else. We think that they are coping and capable. And so I think I didn't accept help and support initially in any way. And that's a big part of why I struggled, I think, because I was trying to do this mothering gig by myself um, and so that's a big part of the work that I do with my clients, and I'm sure you do too with regards to the community, because it does take a community. They went wrong. It's not that saying wasn't wrong. You know, why didn't I take any notice of it? It, it? it takes more than one person to raise a baby. In fact, it takes more than two people. It takes a community. And we are so far removed from that in our Western culture that we need to rediscover it, as you say, with food, with support, with everything. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm so glad that you've shared your story because I was going to ask about your uh, postpartum time, becoming a mother, even though it was 20 years ago. And I, I was similar, like, and my youngest is two and then five, and I'm very fortunate compared to some of my friends, family, and 
again, lots of people offering support and I just didn't take it. I still, even though I knew, and even though with my second, I'd read the first 40 days, I still found it really, really difficult to ask. And I still had this underlying conditioning to just do it on my own and survive. And sometimes I was just sort of keeping my head above water that I didn't think to ask for help until I looked back after a month and a half or a couple of months and went, whoa, you really should have asked for more help. But I also just needed people, and and some people did, to just rock up. And so it's that balance between trying to get mothers and fathers to ask for more help but also trying to get other people to just help in a very gentle, respectful way. Correct. So that's that's about education, isn't it? It's about what, what a new mother needs. A new mother, she doesn't need another pair of lovely baby booties from the local designer store. She's got enough booties. She doesn't need someone to come around that wants to see the baby. She needs someone that wants to come and look after her and as you say in a, in a loving and respectful way um most i find that most mothers that have had babies already understand this don't they they're, yeah. they're the ones that rock up with a bowl of soup and, and hold the baby while you eat your lunch that's right and they're the most busy <laughs> which is ironic yeah but of course they're the most busy that's right and they're often busy. not the visitors yeah. that, that you can you can call on because they have their own families but one of the exercises, yeah, so one of the exercises I do with my couples that I work with or my mothers that I work with um, is that we, we write a list of everything that's going to need to be done after the birth of the baby. Um, and I have to kind of, we brainstorm it together, but I totally have to nudge them, especially first time round, because I'm saying things like, uh, so who's going to clean your house? And they're like, well, oh, I'll, I'll do that. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> no, you won't. No, uh, that's not your job. Someone else will have, you have a baby in your arms, you know, who's going to bring you food? Who's going to walk your dog? Who's going to um, take your toddler to preschool? Who's going to do the, mow the lawns? These kind of basic things that of course we just take, we think we're going to have time to do because we're just going to have a little baby we're not going to have time to do so so then we I do a list of that and then I do a list of everybody in their in their village so to speak who is around you who can we call on and so and then we match it up you know can your mother-in-law walk the dog can your father-in-law mow the lawns who can we employ a cleaner for a few weeks to do the cleaning who's going to bring the meals let's set up a meal train etc um that's the easy bit that that's easy the hard bit is ask So now we're going to ask people to help. And you can almost see, like when I talk about this in workshops, I can almost see this frisson of discomfort and tension that, that runs through. The, and it's not the men most of the time. Men are just sitting back thinking, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's get a clean out. <laughs> the women are like, oh, I just can't possibly ask. It's really interesting, isn't it? I totally relate. My partner was the one that would say, well, just call mum, his mum, because she's one of our closest supports and very lucky. But, well, just call mum. I'll just call mum and ask her to cook some more food and I'll bring it home. <laughs> ah, I do. Right. I've become a lot more comfortable with it. But um, I totally relate to that being difficult. So, yeah, it's really changing that conditioning and also it's weaving it back into our cultural norms and our cultural practices so mum doesn't 
away from the cultural norm that the mum just does it all on her own. And it's not that long ago, and there's so many cultures, as you know, that still have that there, that it's just, well, no, you don't, the mother doesn't get up and clean. If some cultures had that we're expecting mums to sit at home on their own and cook and clean, they would be appalled. So it's just about remembering and reweaving that back into our culture so we don't feel bad for receiving and that other people just instinctually and naturally know that they need to be there more and what they need to do. It'll take a bit of time. But um, I'd love to hear about how you feel about or what your ideas and what you draw on from traditional postpartum practices and how you see that being woven into modern postpartum care. Yeah, so so I think when I did um, Julia's course, the training course that we both did, um, one of the things that rocked my world more than anything else about that whole training was that the was the traditional culture uh, postpartum care practices that Julia educated us about. I knew a little bit about them because. Um, when I was teaching prenatal yoga, I often have women from different cultures in the class. So in Auckland's a very multicultural city. And so I'd often have uh, Asian woman, Chinese, Korean, Taiwanese, and Indian woman. And it was interesting because as you say, we'd go around the group, you know, saying what's happening after the birth of the baby. And, you know, I bring that in and they would, they just look at me puzzled. They go, I'm not doing anything after the birth of my baby. Like, I'm just lying in bed. My grandmother's coming. She's going to make all the soup and I don't have to do anything. I don't have to get out of bed. They'd say, they'd say, I'm not allowed to have a shower for six weeks. That's a bit annoying. <laughs> it's always- I'm not sure why. That's, I've got no idea why, but you know, but she insists on it and we'd all laugh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and all the European women, there'd kind of be a mix of, I suppose, envy and, puzzlement like what do you mean you've got to lie in bed what do you mean that you can't have a shower you've got to have these weird soups and so when I um started learning more about these traditions and finding out about the different traditions around the world with regards to postpartum care for new mums what fascinated me with of, of course was the similarities in them so it didn't matter which culture you came from whether it was India or China or South America obviously very vastly different cultures, the care practices were all very similar. And so you had this uh, set and designated period of rest, which was often 30 to 40 days, where the mother was encouraged not to do anything, to rest in bed with her baby, to be snuggled up, to be cared for, not to do any exercise or housework or cooking or childcare, as you say. So there was that one. And then there was the, the food, which, again, differed wildly depending on what culture you came from. India's food is different from China, but the food was similar. So it was the soups and the dals and the stews and the well-cooked bone broths, things that were always warm, no cold food, no raw food, you know. And then the, with the warmth coming through as well, the warmth in all cultures, new mums being kept warm. And in fact, I remember going round to a, um, a client's house, an Indian client of mine, and uh, her grandma was there from India. And um, not only was she making these amazing puddings and dals and things, um, but my client had to wear socks and a hat. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> she was inside the house. It was quite warm. But her grandma insisted that she had this hat on, you know. Yeah. And she didn't really know why, but she was kind of just appeasing her grandma because her grandma said it was very bad to get cold. So that was another one. And then there was the binding of the belly, which I saw when I was in Bali and in Indonesia. Um, the Chinese girls would often do it as well. And that interested me. So all of these things, like threads through these different cultures. And, and of course, when I started learning more about it, then I discovered about our modern neuroscience understanding of oxytocin, the beautiful hormone of birth and postpartum and breastfeeding and how when we when we have high oxytocin levels we are more able to fall in love with our babies and bond with our babies and produce abundant breast milk and postpartum sorry oxytocin keeps our stress levels low makes us in that lovely gooey warm satisfied contented baby land and of course, when, post, when oxytocin levels are low, if we don't have enough oxytocin, then we become stressed and we become uh, anxious, we become bored, we get boredom levels increase. And, and that really impacts on our bonding with our baby and our breast milk production. So learning all about this, which I knew quite a lot about oxytocin anyway from my birth work um, education, but understanding that, of course, we have to take the oxytocin into the postpartum and all of these care practices, the food, oh, the massage, of course, was the other one, the massage, the body work, being massaged every day if you're in Southeast Asia or in Africa. Um, all of these practices, being fed, being nourished, being rested, being kept warm, being loved, increase a woman's oxytocin. So it's like all of these cultures knew on a deep and profound level the things that needed to be done for a new mother in order to keep her happy and rested, in order to keep her oxytocin levels high. And that just just amazed me. Isn't it incredible? It is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I understand why um, I can see where we've moved away in certain cultures away from it. It just feels like we've how did we lose so much because it makes yeah. sense and it was so strong in so many cultures and even um if your background is european or british it was alive you know 100 years ago or so as well it's been lost and i just think oh how did we lose all of it but um it's so beautiful Correct. I think it's explaining to those those korean mums or those chinese indian mums too now about the purpose of wearing the hat or yes. not having a shower with regards to their grandmas you know saying it that that obviously um if you get cold your oxytocin levels drop out mm -hmm. so it is it is important to keep the body nice and warm um but with regards to having a shower you know if you lived in a village somewhere then if you bathe in the water, it might not be clean. The water might not be clean and it might not be warm. Yeah. And so for you were at risk of getting cold and you were at risk maybe of, of, of having water that wasn't clean. So probably historically those rules were, were quite good, quite important. And, but of course now I say to them, it's okay. You can go and have a hot shower. Just yeah. <laughs> hot showers are on. Hot showers, hot showers are on. Back on the postpartum. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, my yeah. mother-in-law is Filipino and 
she had her children here, but she did have her mother telling her certain things. So she didn't get to experience postpartum care, but there are a few things that she had to cook and do. And when she told her mum that she'd had a shower in the hospital after her cesarean, oh, she got in so much trouble. And <laughs> it, was, it was partly that they felt that the shower was going to take her energy away. And really? it was really interesting having conversations with my mother-in-law about that. And we talked about that. Well, what would the shower have looked like if you're back home? Well, yeah, it would have been a bucket shower, even if it was warm water with herbs in it, which they did do herbal washes and especially um, around the vulva in that area. But um, if they did a full body and hair, you're somewhere where it would have been drafty in the bathroom because it's a bucket shower. You're not in a nice little steamy bathroom where you walk straight out to the heater or the fireplace. So, yeah, it totally made sense. Um, That's and right. her second, she just didn't tell her that she had a shower in the warm hospital. She just couldn't convey because her mum had had all home births and um, she couldn't convey that she was in a nice warm hospital where it was a nice warm shower and the nurse was helping her. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So I think, you know, historically these things have probably their roots in, in common sense, but but a lot of them even, they they correlate quite well into modern day. I mean, a massage every day for a body who's just been pregnant and given birth has just done this incredible marathon of, of ex energy expenditure. We need to be rehabilitated and repaired from that. And, and body work should be a, uh, it's not a luxury. It should be a necessity. Hey there, I'm Julia. I'm interrupting this podcast to let you know that if you are really enjoying this podcast, you'll probably really enjoy newborn mothers too. We provide online courses for professionals and mothers worldwide who believe birth is about making mums too. You'll find all the links in the show notes. Enjoy the rest of the show. And when you break down the practicalities of massage on so many levels, we should be resting because one, you need to conserve energy and you should be resting because everything's still open physically and you want your uterus to stay in place and you don't want your pelvis to come out of line and all of that sort of thing. And if you're resting, you need extra circulation in that time. Yes. So massage comes along. The oxytocin factor, like you mentioned, which is so important to help relax and to bond and to recover and to calm the nervous system after the huge feat of birth, whether it was vaginal or surgical or um, assisted. And then also what we're learning now about massages role in the immune system and helping the immune system to stay strong. Well, that makes sense as well, that we want mum's immune system to be super tip-top at that time. Yeah, That's right. Massage needs to get back on the list straight away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think so. I really do. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, um, I would have to really talk to a woman about postpartum massage and trying to get them to book a massage afterwards. And sometimes they wouldn't, sometimes they wouldn't. But I did have an Indian client once. I, I didn't actually know who she rung me from, you know, from nowhere, um, and asked me to come and do a massage, a postpartum massage for her every day for forty days uh, after the birth of her baby. And I'll never forget that because she was the only person that I've ever done it for. And she was not a rich woman. They, they lived in a little apartment underneath somebody else's house. Her husband was a career driver 
um, she had a grandma over from India and she, you know, she bargained me right down on the price um, and, and to, to get a good price. And she, and I was only there for a short period of time. I think she only wanted half an hour. Um, but she, the, the point I'm making is she valued that. Yeah. That was money that she'd put aside. She valued that having that massage every day for the whole month was going to be really beneficial for her. So they saved for it and they budgeted for it and they put that money aside. And I think that is just because she was well educated as to the, the benefits that she was going to receive of that body work. Yeah, that speaks volumes about that value. And I guess for her, the thought of not having that and the effects yes. it would have on her health and how much benefit having it would bring, it probably wasn't even a question. It was just like, like when you need to get your car fixed or you need to register your car if you have a car or you need to, I don't know, enroll your kids in school, you just find a way because Correct. you've got so much value around that. Yeah, I, I often use I often use car as an analogy for massage. Eh? Like we take our car in to be serviced, just to make sure it doesn't break down. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we need to be doing the same with our body because, as I read somewhere, you know, look after your body. Where else are you going to live? <laughs> exactly, and you're the your main. Usually, the mother is the baby's main life source. So. Just bring it back to the baby. <laughs> you yes. do it for the baby. Of course, we want to entwine that that self care and self worth as well. But what's interesting? But oh, go sorry. Yeah, go. Um, I was yeah. just going to say what's interesting. But it's, it's exactly that. Is that that I think all these cultures saw that they knew that if you looked after the mother, the baby would be fine. You know, we're almost the other way around. We've got it around the the wrong way. The the, the focus goes from the mother when she's pregnant as being this pregnant goddess that everybody fusses around and then as soon as she's had the baby all the focus is on the baby whereas as you say that you've put it really well there that you know, the mother is the baby's main life support and I think these cultural practices were all about that they were like well, we look after the mother the mother keeps the baby alive and, and thriving yeah absolutely yeah and we need to be reminded of that that that's where <laughs> baby's fine. Babies don't need yeah. much either. No. They really, really don't need much. We all learn that, especially first time mums. Um, and what's interesting is in an old medical book I found, which had British origins, but written um, early 1900s in Australia, it mentioned the traditional British cultural postpartum care. There were some strange ideas in there, but it did mention massage nearly every day. Really? Yeah, yeah. And this was only in the early 1900s. Wow. I'd, oh, I'd love to see that. That's I've, really interesting because we don't even have... On my Instagram, I think I put up um, a while back, but I'll tag you. And it also had beautiful little phrases like, the mother has been through... Um, it was old-fashioned language. There's something like, the mother's body has been through quite an ordeal, no, has been through quite an ordeal emotionally and physically and needs some time for her system to settle and should, there should only be joyous company, something along those lines, yeah. time for her to get to know this new little creature or <laughs> such funny language, but a really strong understanding of this yeah. in the 1900s, not that long ago. Yeah. That's amazing. 
So I love that it really was everywhere, even though we f I feel like I gain a lot of inspiration from other cultures and will continue to do so, but looking to my own lineage, which is mostly Irish actually, but um, yeah, it was there. Yeah. 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 I think that's really interesting that we, as you say, we often go, you know, because I think, I don't know, we've lost it from those European cultures maybe faster. Um, but unfortunately, it is also being lost from the Eastern cultures as well. In, more recently, and this is why this renaissance of postpartum care is so exciting to me, because if we're not careful, we lose, we lose it. And people don't even realise why it was done in the first place. And so that's what I love about my work is being able to educate my my families because as soon as you educate people as soon as you start talking about it they get it straight away don't they women get it women that have had babies 30 years ago 40 years ago women who've had babies two years ago as soon as you say i look after women so that they can look after their babies they just go oh my god i wish i had you yes <laughs> Where were you when I had children? <laughs> Where were you when I had children? That's what everybody says, isn't it? The people understand it on some deep level. Um, and just going back to what we were talking about before, about the asking for help thing, I've got a couple of theories on that. I think, I think it's to do with the fact that we are very lucky as, as younger women to be brought up in a culture of, of fourth-wave feminism in the, in the West which is absolutely wonderful. I'm a very, you know, very staunch feminist and, uh, um, and feel very aligned with the feminist movement. But the feminist movement ta has taught us that girls can do anything. Um, and that is totally true. Of course, we can, anything that a man can do. However, we shouldn't have to do everything. <laughs> we can do anything, but we shouldn't have to do everything. And I think that thing of... of being brought up as an yeah an independent woman who has been brought up I was brought up by a strong mum who who was a single mum and that she was a great role model um and so I definitely was brought up thinking I can go out into the world and do whatever I want so the thought that I then had to kind of turn it around and be be vulnerable and be needy and be uh, in a way, it, what you could view as weak. I'm, I'm not able to look after this baby by myself, so I need other people's help to, to support me. It felt uncomfortable. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense, yeah. I'm yeah. glad you brought up that point. And it's all we've had modelled as well yeah. recently. Like you said, whether um, I got the single mother mostly too, but even in non-single families, it's still the mother would have been doing them majority of it most of the time so we've had that modeled so it's just innate in us that we feel like yeah. that's how it should be that's how I should be and there is a little bit of an attitude sometimes when I talk to some not all people who are maybe um, a generation above me or my parents age is that well we did it on our own we did it hard that's right yeah so I get that from my clients too yeah not all yeah. and it is changing but that is there and then i think about the unique histories in different countries so both of us having lived in australia and new zealand um is with its colonial history that if you've got um if your family has a colonial his um ancestors well they did it tough on their own because they left everyone and i've That's been right. reading some really interesting stories about what that was for colonial women they were out a lot of them were out in the middle of nowhere not many people around 
Um, there's some beautiful, interesting stories about Aboriginal women helping um, colonial women. Oh, really? Birthing. Yeah, and they're birthing. Um, but then they were just sort of isolated and sometimes their husbands would be off chopping down trees uh, for days or weeks on end and yeah. it would take, if they wanted a midwife, a local traditional midwife, not uh, medically trained, so it would take a day or two sometimes for them to get to them or at least a couple of hours and these sorts of things. So we've got that history of isolation where that community got broken down from that. Yes, um, and of course with that I think comes trauma as well. Absolutely. And I just think it's another area where it's such a shame that we could have learnt so much from um, the Indigenous peoples here, but something yes. that then we can start reweaving. Yeah, so it's, it's complex, the history of where it's been broken. And like you said, it's still happening as people move away from their own countries where they're born or their family. Um, it can quickly get lost. So I'm with you. I'm so passionate about revitalising this and giving it value to people um, no matter what their lineage yeah. is, yeah, exactly. It's all it's all the same. We're all human beings, and new mothers need the same the same care in every culture. It doesn't matter which you know where we come from. But being able to rediscover, especially like you say, in our own lineage, it's very interesting. You know, for your listeners to be able to understand maybe where they their parents and grandparents came from, and talk to them about about what they know about postpartum care for new babies. There is a fracture, however, as you say, there, it has been fractured one or two generations back often. Sometimes even grandmothers don't know um, what was done or they've heard about it, but they thought it was old fashioned. But um, when we start to investigate our own lineage, it can be really interesting to bring these things back. But so much of it is community care. And I was thinking about it last night, actually, because I'm, I'm staying with my sister at the moment which is really lovely. And she's got two small kids who are uh, seven and 10. And I don't know what I was doing. I think I was just cooking dinner last night for, for them because I, because she was busy doing something else and I was cooking dinner and we were kind of helping each other. And we had a glass of wine in our hands. We were chatting, we were cooking and doing things and housework. And I realized that when you're living with another woman and a family, you know what to do. You know that things need to be done. You, you're hanging out the washing, you're peeling the vegetables you're you know you're working as a team almost and don't get me wrong my brother-in-law's fantastic as well so we're all doing that stuff but it, it was so lovely to slip in and I thought oh this must be what it would be like if you lived with your sisters mm. and you all had small children running around and you're you're not in your own little home doing your own stuff you're all actually working together in to look after each other's families and and that it was quite profound for me thinking what a lovely chance it is to do that with her and how that must be throughout the world. Yeah, I've often thought about that. I think, oh, I got it the wrong way around. Like I lived in beautiful share houses in my 20s and then yeah. I just moved out on my own with my family, which is I'm very lucky to have my house, but this is when I need my share house or at least someone next door Correct. because Correct. we all live together and shop together and... I'm like, oh, now, now I really need it. So I'd right. yeah, love to see a movement back to people intentionally living much closer to each other. Yeah, uh, that's right. Time. Yeah. I've spoken to my nan a little bit. She's one of nine, grew up very poor in Sydney, in Balmain, before it was a very wealthy, cool area. And um, her mother had home births for most of her children. And she remembers, she's one of the oldest ones, she remembers the midwife rocking up in a horse and cart, tying her up to the fence, coming into the house when her mother is in labour with one of her younger siblings, jumping into bed with her for the night, 
and delivering the baby in the morning and coming and going over the next weeks. Um, And her mum stayed in bed for two weeks. So that's my great-grandmother, had two weeks. My nan had 10 days and then it was just sort of dissipated. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's right. You know, lucky enough to be in hospital for one day now. Some of my clients have been turfed out of hospital after one day. It's tragic. It is. And some women can't wait to get home, but I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's right that's right absolutely i mean it's it's totally if you you know if you've got the care at home that's perfectly fine but but i had a particular client who was it was a single mum she didn't even have a partner at home to look after her and they were trying she had the baby at 2 a.m and at 6 a.m they were trying to get her to leave the hospital <gasps> wow yeah i've heard some shocking stories as well such a shame a it's just, you know it's a system flaws it's just so there's so much pressure yeah so So, I would love to hear a little bit about what someone could expect to experience if they had someone like auntie Jojo Dula (laughs) coming (laughs) to visit them to support their postpartum care you painted a little bit of a picture but yeah what would a day look like sure sure so I start working with my families um prenatally in the in the pregnancy in the last few weeks of pregnancy um because i definitely think that time is really important as well to slow down to start really honoring um the process that's going on in their bodies of the third trimester of pregnancy in preparation for the birth of this new baby so um towards the end of the pregnancy i'm encouraging my clients to have prenatal massages to gain some deep relaxation to prepare their bodies for birth. Um, and we, we sit down and we do some postpartum planning. So a bit of a, I've just touched on earlier, you know, who's going to look after them, creating that list. They're trying to figure out what their ideal postpartum looks like. What does it feel like for them? How do they want to feel? What things are important to them? What things aren't important? Because a big part of the slow living movement teaches us to to value the things in our lives that are important and to lay aside the things that aren't so important to prioritize our lives and so that we can we can almost create or build a life that is is meaningful to us and of course those questions are different for everybody we we all have different answers to the question what is important to you so I really get them to start thinking deeply about that before baby comes so that we can create this postpartum sanctuary that is ideal for them. Um, and the thing is about, about just as I mentioned before, we can do most things, but we can't do everything. So very much a part of creating a postpartum sanctuary or, a, or even a life that is meaningful and valuable means that we, in order to value some things, we have to lay aside other things you know um and so i get them to do that deep work before baby comes and then we plan for that we create this postpartum because it's so common really for for women including myself i'm not sure about you but i had a very detailed birth plan (laughs) about you know it was probably four pages long of all the things that i wanted the birth to be and not to be i hadn't even thought about the postpartum shelly i i didn't even think about the what it was going to be like when the baby came home. And that's why I think it hit me so hard was because I hadn't planned for how I wanted things to be. 
you know, vaguely, but not really. And, and so when it, I had that little baby in my arms and my life was turned upside down, it, I really struggled. So postpartum planning is a big part of it. And then after the birth of the baby, I um, come into the home. Sometimes it's like a couple of times I've been there on the doorstep when they brought the baby home from the hospital, which has been lovely. Um, and I am there to hold the space and create this sanctuary of peace and harmony and love and care around the couple, not just the mum, but the couple, so that they both have the opportunity to, to enjoy this time rather than for it to be a time of stress and overwhelm. Yeah. So I, ask them what's important to them as we've just discussed and 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 provide that really so for every every family it's different um some mums might just be really wanting me to cook for them and in which case i'll come in i'll buy the food on my way usually ask them what their favorite most delicious most sustaining foods are apart from ice cream i usually say they're not allowed to ice cream that's <laughs> too cold <laughs> They really want ice cream. Though. If they really want ice cream, then they can have a little bit of ice cream because it's all about the love. It's not about the you're allowed and you're not allowed, you know. But I'll, I'll give them some ideas on what some really lovely postpartum food is. And I, I bring in some Ayurvedic cooking, which is the traditional medicine of India, um, if they're in, into that because Ayurvedic cooking is beautiful for new mums, warm and spiced and rich with ghee and coconut milk and things like that. Massage is really popular with many of my clients, they really do see the benefit in, in being massaged. So I bring my massage table along and I will massage them for as long as they want and bind their belly. I brought, I'm a qualified aromatherapist, so I'll bring my essential oils in um, and use essential oils conservatively um, with, new with new babies around. They're not suitable for new babies, but, but they can be beneficial for new mums sometimes. Um, and I'll be there just, as I said, to, to make sure that the things that were important to them are happening. Because it, when you're in that space, it's not your job to do that. It's not your job. It's like, I always think of, it's like being a bride, isn't it? I think it's just as important. A wedding day, I, I quite often compare that to the, a birthing day, actually. That we plan, a lot of people plan for their weddings and plan for the um, all the things that are going to happen on that one day. And so that's why birth planning is really important. We need to plan for our births. It's one day, and it's shorter if you're lucky and longer if, you're, if it's a bit harder. But the postpartum is your honeymoon. The postpartum is the time where you are falling in love. And it's not just with your baby, but it's with each other again. And you're creating this three where there used to be two and so you want your honeymoon to be beautiful and and restful and not disturbed by lots of people knocking on the door yeah <laughs> and you want your food to be there for you you don't have to be you don't want to be have to be cooking your own food on your honeymoon or cleaning your own house so the baby moon is just the same and that's why the preparation is so important. And that's why other people need to support you in, in, in creating this beautiful bubble of peace and harmony and love and sanctuary. That's, that's, that's my job. 
Oh, sounds delicious. And I love that analogy too. I often use the wedding. People will put a lot of money aside for their wedding. Yes. Amazing amounts and, um, and money aside for the honeymoon. And no one would blink an eyelid at getting a few massages on your honeymoon and going to a, a day spa and, yeah, ordering food out and all of that sort of yeah. thing. And really that money, or half, even if you just put half of that aside and scale down to a really simple, slow wedding, I'm not saying don't have your beautiful wedding, put half aside for uh, your postpartum time. I so agree. I so agree. And I, you know, and I wish to think that with the visitors too, you know, your, your, your honeymoon is the time where you're bonding with your partner. Mm. I mean, especially traditionally, if you hadn't lived together before, mm. you didn't, you know, historically, you didn't even really know your partner that well because you maybe hadn't lived with together. So your honeymoon was the time where you were getting to know each other and falling in love and bonding with each other. And so lots of people wouldn't be coming around and expecting to come and sit and talk to you and disturb you and want to be part of that so it's the same with visitors postpartum visitors are great if they're bringing you food and caring for you and looking after you and create helping to hold that space but we need to be quite um quite protective of that space of the people that are coming into it and, and how they affect us. And if they don't feel right and they're not bringing the right energy in, then it's okay to put them off and to, to delay them for a few weeks and say, we'd love to see you and, and by all means come and see the baby, but we're going to have a little time in for a few days, just get, getting to know each other. And, and that's okay. People sometimes struggle with that as well, don't they? Yeah, yeah, setting boundaries, absolutely, yeah. And just having your inner support network at that time. Yeah. You would at any time where you're retreating. If someone was unwell or um, had had a huge loss or going through grief, people naturally understand that that person needs more nurture and maybe less people around or certain types of um, care or certain types of people. And it's the same. It's just that time to be a little bit more cautious about, and, you know, having lots of visitors can be draining. It can be really Very draining. Really draining. So yeah. you definitely need people that are happy to kind of just float around and, and be helpful and take initiative. <laughs> totally. Bring your food, make your cup of tea, make your bed, change the sheets, hold the baby while you have a shower, um, take the baby. I, you know, I always remember a friend of mine. It's funny little things you remember, isn't it? A, a friend of mine knocked on the door and she said in my village and um she said do you want me to take the baby for a walk around the block in the buggy while you eat your lunch and have a have a, a shower it's like, oh, yes yes. <laughs> yes you know and I remember she took the baby off and I remember eating my lunch with my with my hands <laughs> like with my knife and fork you know amazing. <laughs> amazing and then I remember having a shower and I think laying on the bed and just having that time and space out. I'll never forget that little act of kindness that she didn't even probably think was anything, but for me was huge. Mm, so beautiful. Yeah. I was really lucky to live with my mother-in-law. So I got, I got more showers than most, but I do remember a friend coming around and, and just really simply and beautifully looking at me, learning to breastfeed and just saying, Oh, how beautiful. You look like a natural or something along those lines. Or look, baby's a natural and has a great latch and well done, mama. Something very simple. It was one sentence. And that one sentence alone 
just made my whole body relaxed and went, oh, yeah, oh. I've got this. I'm doing this. I can do this because yeah. I was just sort of fumbling along my first. Um, yeah, so those sorts of really beautiful, gentle, encouraging statements, not too much hard advice, but just that encouragement. Um, so true. So you've hit the nail on the head there because so many new mums get so much advice. Um, and I always say that my job is not to give advice. I'm not there to, to, to tell my clients what to do. They know what to do. They have that innate mothering skill. They need to learn to trust that and to understand. And, and of course, part of that is just by trying things and, and making mistakes and allowing themselves to, to not get it right all the time. And that's okay. But it's a, it's hard because we are always wanting to to help as, as, as helpers, but, and often new mums are wanting you to tell them what to do. What shall I do? What shall I do? What does this cry mean? Yeah. But we can't. Yeah. It's a balance. So, so affirmation, words of affirmation and encouragement and positive um, statements like your friend made just can make, you forget that they can make the world of difference. Absolutely. And I think they should be the first point of call. If someone is, having a bit of a challenge or fumbling a little bit in an area, but in a safe way, just some encouragement and seeing what blossoms from that because people do find their innate wisdom with that encouragement. And then if a little bit more of that mother is, or the father's really needing advice, maybe just giving a few simple options, not in an overwhelming way, but well, these are your options. What feels right for you and your family? Correct. And that's Correct. handing over that power that, oh, I don't need to do what's, written here x y z i can find what's right for me and i have options and what was that's right, for my right. Friend or what my mum said might not be right for me and they or maybe it will yes yes i can just try it that's exactly what i say as well how does that feel to try that and if it feels okay then maybe try it because some people are going to give you nuggets of great advice and things that work for them and it might work for your baby so give it a try and if it doesn't work it's okay as well. You're not going to break your baby. You're not going to, babies are very forgiving. They'll tell you if, they, if, if something's not going to work. Yeah. But of course, the other thing is that babies are individuals and, and they don't fit into what one book says. It's not going to work for all babies or what one, what work for one person's baby might not work for your baby. And that's okay too. So it's, it is so hard though. Don't you remember when you bring that first baby home and it's like, where's the instruction book? <laughs> even in hospital i got so much conflicting breastfeeding by advice and i can see why people can't wait to get home because when i did get home i just felt like i could just do what i felt without trying to think about the advice i think that's another yes. thing it's not a time for trying to think and analyze it's more for that um observing and guiding yeah so i would love before we wrap up I really love how you advocate for the really important role that dads or partners and or partners play in the postpartum time and how it's also a postpartum for them, even if it's in a different form, and striking that balance between experiencing and melting into the postpartum while also being a support person and needing support. Can you share a little yeah. bit more about your thoughts on that? Yeah, sure, sure. I, I find that... Um, quite often when I ask women um, uh, about who will be supporting them during the postpartum, they'll say, my partner will be. And that is the case to a degree. But 
I have to remind them that that the postpartum is also for their partner as well. So that you know, the, the, this is a triad, if you like, not a dyad. Um, there is a mother baby diet, but there is the, the partner there as well. And not only are they a big part of the, um, the process of falling in love with the baby and, and bonding and com- connecting with the baby, but also they are often really tired. <laughs> Partners are also usually getting woken up numerous times at night. Um, and unfortunately in, in this modern day world, quite often they're having to go back to work quite quickly as well within one to two weeks I find is, is normal. And so a partner that is having to work all day and then getting woken up all night by the baby is also in a state of exhaustion quite often. And when both partners are in that state of exhaustion, then then it can be really quite challenging on on the relationship. And unfortunately, it is a a, a difficult statistic to say that, that it's very common in the first year after a baby is born for a relationship to go through a quite a severe crisis. Um, and even though we think that a baby brings happiness and joy, which it does, there's also layers of, of extra stress that are put upon. And, and many partners feel the weight of responsibility of suddenly having this new person to care for and be responsible for as well as their partner. It can lay quite heavily on their shoulders and they can react in, in, in different ways. So we need to protect the space for them and make sure that they are being cared for and also make sure that the care that, you know, that their partner was giving them the emotional support and that maybe the, the practical support around the home. So perhaps their partner was doing a bit of the cooking. This is the mum I'm talking about cooking and housework. She's not going to be available to do that for them, you know, if they're out working. So who's going to be there to hold that space, not just for the mother, but also for the partner. It's really important. They're also going through a transformative space um, because they, they also are becoming a parent. This is really important. And a lot of the emotional and psychological work that the mother is going through with regards to becoming a mother which is huge. We haven't even touched on that yet, but that transformation of, of matrescence, the, the, the process of becoming a mother, the partner's also going through as well. So he's becoming a father or she's becoming a, a co-parent. And so we need to honour that space. And I think it's important for them to talk about that before the baby comes. How is this going to affect our relationship? I think that's something that sometimes we don't take into consideration. How do we both react to being very, very tired and exhausted? How do we react emotionally to that? How can we mitigate maybe the the negative consequences when we're both feeling a bit overwhelmed and about both frazzled? We don't want to take it out on each other, as as can sometimes happen. Um, I think you know people that have had babies will, will understand this because they know that it's not all, all songs and roses when a baby comes along. It can be quite difficult on a relationship. Um, and so I think talking about those things beforehand, planning for them, discussing them. One of the things that I like my clients to do is I, I ask them to go out on a date. This is part of their homework when I'm, when I'm working with them prenatally. And I say, okay, this is your homework, guys. I want you to go out on a date. And this date is going to be a little celebration, but it's also going to be a farewell. And it's going to be a farewell to your relationship. Your relationship is ending as you know it. It will never be the same. 
there will never just be the two of you. And there is some grief and, and letting go that comes with that. And I want you to acknowledge that and say goodbye to each other in a way, you know, to say goodbye to this relationship that you once had and celebrate and welcome in this new relationship in some way. Maybe it's a ritual, maybe it's a celebration, maybe it's a just going out for dinner, maybe it's a buying you each other a gift. But acknowledging that and remembering to be gentle with each other in the weeks and months passing because you will you will grieve the, that relationship that you had and you will miss that person, you know, because they won't be there for you in the same way as they once were, because there's this person in between the two of you. There's a person in between and all of your focus will be on that little person for a while at least. So understanding that I think allows us to acknowledge the relationship and bring in that partner and make them an important part of the postpartum as well. And having other people there to look after them, have be, be there to be a listening ear for them as well. So they can download their fears, their insecurities, their anxieties, their joys, because probably the mother is not going to be the right person to be downloading all that stuff necessarily, you know. So a good example of that would be if they struggled with the birth. Birth can be challenging for many partners to see their to see their partner in pain and discomfort. And if the birth was any way challenging, they could be holding some stuff and trauma around that. The mother might not be the best person to talk about that to. So who are they going to talk to? Who are they going to talk to when things get hard? Um, because that's really important. We need the, 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 the mother and the partner to be healthy in mind and body and spirit so that they can both be there for their baby. Mm, yeah, such important points. It's such powerful work that you're sharing. And I wish I had known all this. <laughs> but um, I also like the point that you brought up matrescence and... I have spoken about another podcast, but for people that haven't heard, matrescence is this concept like adolescence where it's this huge crossing of a threshold and this new becoming of something, um, a new you, this huge transition on emotional, physical, psychological point of view and everything that the mother's going through, the father's going through. So patrescence, um, paternal transition, that new you. And in some ways it's more all-encompassing for the mother. I call it sometimes the great divide because you can go from being, like you said, the independent woman out working or doing whatever you're doing in the world to all of a sudden having to give, it feels like you have to give all that up, completely surrender to this new role, but often dads go back out into the adult world, <laughs> back yes. with adult conversations and possibly sitting down and have lunch breaks or whatever it is they're doing and you're still sitting at home in this um, other world. Baby stuck to your breast. Yeah, there's no, there's no escape. There's no in and out. It's all encompassing. So, yeah, being able to embrace the new father with the new mother, but also, like I said, so gentle with what, how different each other's realities may be as well and where that That's right. being met in the middle. And it just keeps coming back to that community support, like you said. You need other people to help give a little bit of space, even if they're only brief little moments where the parents can meet and and connect and and just be and sit in that new role together correct and that and that's what i I've, you know sometimes i will do that in my work <clears throat> excuse me i'll arrive at the house and um the, the dad or the partner might be there and i'll say to them do you guys want to go out for a cup of coffee together just i can look after baby i'm cooking baby's asleep 
go out and have a cup of coffee, go for a walk, go and do something together that's meaningful to you or, or not meaningful, just, just nice. And, and give them a space to have a whole conversation because maybe they haven't had a chance to be together for the whole week and have a whole conversation. Mm. So that's, that's really important. That's the role of a community. We're not meant to be parenting babies in isolation with just one or two people. That's not how it's meant to work. It's too many jobs. I always say being a good parent is too many jobs for one person or even two people. Yeah, so true. So anyone listening, go easy on yourself. If you're having a hard day, feeling like you're dropping the balls, it's okay. You weren't meant to yeah. hold them all. <laughs> no, you weren't. The, the rubber ones are fine to drop. As I yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and that's what you, you, you work out. What are your glass balls? I oh, heard a I lovely love analogy. What are the glass balls? What are the rubber balls? The rubber oh, balls, oh, you can drop those. It's fine. Yeah, they'll bounce. <laughs> yeah. Hold on to the baby in each other. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Oh, Jojo, I just I love hearing your passion and your love and your depth and understanding for it all. And I think anyone that gets to work with you would be so lucky. Um, and I'd love to hear just before we wrap up about where you are, what you're offering online, in person, your next directions and where people can find you as well. And I'll pop all the links up. Sure. Thank you so much. Well, I'm currently based in the UK. I'm actually working sort of internationally at the moment. I'm traveling where people want me to travel to, um, which is very lucky. I'm very blessed that I'm a bit more mobile now that my boy has left home. So I'm available for face-to-face postpartum doula work in the UK and, um, and in New Zealand and really anywhere if, if people are happy to have me. Um, my passion is teaching how to live a slower life and to educate about slow living. Um, and I'm just in the process of doing an online slow postpartum mentoring as well. So if people can't have me face to face in their homes, then I can be a mentor online um, for, for pregnant mums and new families, trying to bring that slow living philosophy into their, into their world and especially into their postpartum. Um, and just in the process of creating a little online course as well, that'll be out in a few weeks' time. So if people want to follow me, they can look me up on Instagram, Slow Postpartum, same on Facebook, um, or visit my website, which is slowpostpartum.com and get in touch. And I'd be more than happy to chat to them about, uh, about my passion, which is living slower with a new baby. Beautiful. Thank you. And I think also on your website, you've got a pretty cool download, don't you? I haven't looked at it, but I know it's there. Six steps. To Correct. That's one great way to start and get a feel for you. I'll pop up all those links. Well, thank you so much. I feel like we could have gone off on any tangent for another hour or two. So <laughs> I'll have to get you back another time in a year or so. Lovely. I'd love to. Following your journeys around the world. And, yeah, like I said, anyone listening out there, please have a look at um, investing and, and putting some money aside for a postpartum jeweler. And if you're in the UK, you're very lucky. If I was, if I had Jojo here, I would think about another baby. <laughs> have another baby, Shelley. Oh, no, no, I'll just help other people now. <laughs> Moving into the auntie phase. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening today. I really hope there was something there for you. Please feel free to head on over to Instagram and Facebook pages, Pollination Mamas, and leave your thoughts, ideas, inspirations, feedback. 
I'd also really love for this to partly be a collaborative experience for all of you out there listening and to hear what topics, uh, ideas for guest speakers that you might have. And also, if you feel to, I would really appreciate if you head on over to iTunes, Anchor FM and the other platforms and left a review for the Pollination Mamas podcast. This helps for the podcast to be seen more and to get the word out there, these topics that we're all discussing to a larger audience. I found podcasts so helpful to feel a bit more connected to ideas that I didn't realize were um so common amongst us all so yeah also feel free to share with anyone out there that you feel may gain something from this i also have a sign up on my website pollinationmamas.com where i send out approximately a monthly mail out with latest podcasts sales on my small batch largely homegrown herbal products latest workshops and other thoughts and ideas that i might pop up on the blog occasionally So thanks again for tuning in and hope to have you listening again soon.